Thank you for listening to this Q&A session of Questioning Christianity. We hope you'll continue exploring Christianity by requesting your free copy of Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God. Free copies will be shipped while supplies last. To get your copy, go to gospelandlife.com free. Again, that's gospelandlife.com free. You know, Tim, you actually just ended by highlighting that um, because of the resources that Christians have, um, their moral absolute don't turn them into Pharisees. Supposedly. Supposedly, right. So I'm connecting it to this question question that someone's asking because I think it's actually really interesting. Um, why is, and there are, there's a high population of those who consider themselves Christians in the United States, right? And so therefore potentially live according to moral absolutes. So this question is asking, why is it that societies that are much more secular than the U.S. have lower crime rates better quality of life, and equality? Well, let's be... uh, I promised I wasn't going to do this. Next week might help answer this question somewhat. I'll I'll, I'll give you an answer, but uh, I would hope you either come back or you you watch it live stream or something. It really... This is, a, is somewhat of a two-parter, so sorry about that. I, I want most of these talks to be standalone, and, uh, but this one isn't completely there. Uh, the secular societies are, are for, <laughs> they are secular in the sense that, I, you're thinking of Europe, basically, and uh, they are secular in the sense that, they, that today the majority of people don't go to church and the majority of people don't say they're Christians, but they're historically Christian countries. Uh, which is to say there's a terrific amount of, uh, uh, I'm going to try to make the case next week, um, there's uh, the, the emphasis on human rights, the emphasis on um, universal benevolence and caring for the poor, etc. Number one, they are, um, a lot of those things have come through their, their Christian heritage. So a lot of those values have come from Christian heritage, number one. Number two, the fact is, that as those places get more racially diverse and culturally diverse, which is happening now, they're starting to have the same problems we're having. And the reason for that is because secular people don't have a way of, make, of adjudicating moral differences. They don't have anything to appeal to. And so it's really true that, uh, you know, uh, frankly, I, don't, I hate to call these places out, uh, you know, Finland, Sweden, Norway, these are... Uh, all countries that have fewer people in them, each one of them has fewer people in them than New York City. Uh, and they've been very homogeneous and they're relatively uh, not very populated. But now as they are growing and as they are becoming more culturally diverse, they're going to have the same problems we do. Uh, now, when you say uh, Christians in this country, that would, again, that also is another a large subject. I, I tried to hedge... I, I, I didn't mean to hedge, but, but I did. Um, I tried to say that you've got, you've got, obviously you've got Christians who simply, they don't understand their faith very much, but they're traditionally and culturally Christian, and there's a big percentage of people like that. Uh, I tried to say, to the degree that you grasp what I was telling you, the heart of the faith, that takes away that arrogance and that Phariseeism, which some of you are going to say, so are you really saying there's that many Christian that many professing Christians in America who don't understand the heart of their faith? Yeah. Okay. But I would, and also, besides that, nobody overcomes the Phariseeism at all. I mean, we all have a problem with the self-righteousness, the anger, the condescension, 
uh, not just Christians. But Christians actually have the resources in their faith to undermine what is, I would say, the normal human tendency to arrogance and Phariseeism over moral issues. Christians have got that resource. So many of them are not using it. On the other hand, we're trying to put it to use right here so that you see there really is another approach. Uh, and Christians can actually talk about these things, still think that, that uh, still have their convictions about the truth, but at the same time not be abusive and condescending to people. Um, I think this question follows up with that. Um, so you highlighted that many people might potentially have the resource or like access to the resources of the Christian faith, but they don't utilize it. Um, and then this person's asking, and I've been asked this question multiple times too. Um, I'll just state the way they say it. They say, I agree that many people leave Christianity because of the moral failures of Christians. Therefore, it seems like it's more practical and good to live a secular life if so many Christians aren't moral anyway. Thoughts. So many Christians are... Aren't moral anyway. So you're well, highlighting that some people are pursuing Christianity, but then they don't access the resources. Then what's the point? Why don't we just live secular lives? Right, okay. But here's the, what I'm trying to say. If you're secular, you don't have those resources at all. You don't have them to access. Uh, the two I've already tried to mention tonight, one is you don't have a good... You, the, to use the philosophical term, you don't have a rational justification for moral obligation. When you're talking to somebody who says, why not starve the poor, you've got no way of saying... I mean, I mean, if you're a Muslim or a Christian, you could say, because God says you shouldn't starve the poor. And you may not agree with them, but at least it's consistent with their beliefs about the universe to say to you, you must not starve the poor. It's consistent. I'm trying to say tonight that uh, if you, your secular beliefs, you actually don't have the right because you don't have anything out here. All you've got are your feelings. You don't have the right to say, my feelings need to take preference over your feelings because we're equals and yet you're not acting as if you're equal. So you don't have the resources from our obligation. But I'm also trying to say it's very difficult. You don't have the Christian resources to undermine the natural self-righteousness that all human beings have. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, H-A-I-D-T, he teaches at NYU, very prominent social psychologist, not a Christian man, a secular man, uh, uh, says that self-righteousness is the natural human condition. He talks a great deal about the fact that we're at each other's throats and we cannot work together in spite of our moral differences. And he says the main reason for that is self-righteousness. And he says you've got to find something to undermine your self-righteousness. I, I don't think that secular people have got anything like what Christians do have. You might say, well, the Christians aren't doing it. All right, well, listen. When, after 9-11, two days after 9-11, I was reading uh, an article out loud to my wife, Kathy, and uh, some of you are going to say, you have to quote Kathy at least once every week, don't you? I said, well, she's, got, she's very quotable. Uh, and I was reading a... right. I was, re I, know, I was reading an article about why fundamentalism was the cause of 9-11. And the article said, anybody who thinks that they have the moral truth, they have an absolute moral truth, they are, they, they, you know, they are likely to become terrorists. And Kathy says, that's not true. It depends on what the moral absolute is. Have you ever seen a, a, an Amish terrorist? 
And she says, uh, the reason why you've never seen an Amish terrorist is because at the heart of the Amish understanding of things, which is really just the Christian understanding of things, is, is a man dying on the cross for his enemies, praying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Now, if that's your moral absolute, see, if that's the heart of your faith, how does that turn you into a terrorist? It can't. To the degree that you actually see that as the central part, a man dying on the cross, Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, that my salvation, that's the Christian idea, is not based on a set of moral standards up there in heaven that I'm living up to. That's my salvation. That's the moral absolute. That cannot turn me into a, a terrorist. That is an incredible resource that nobody else has got. That's what I was trying to say at the very end. No, no other religion has got that, and uh, because other religions do have a tendency to say, I'm saved by li living up to the law, you know, the, the moral law, and secular people don't have that. So, honestly, you don't, secular people don't have either the resources for moral obligation or to undermine the self-righteousness, which is the reason we're having so much trouble in our society today. Um, you referenced slavery during your talk. I did. You did. And um, I th there are several questions that have come in about that. And I think this question gets at, because you're highlighting that Christianity gives us access to moral absolutes. Um, but uh, I think this question is highlighting that there doesn't seem to be even consensus within the Christian community about some of those absolutes. Because this person asks, um, you were talking about a moral consensus and that it doesn't work because a thousand years ago, the consensus was that slavery is right. However, some Christians were pro-slavery. How do you explain this? Were the Confederate leaders just dumb or bad Christians? Yes. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. I, I, I was answering the very last part of the question. I don't want to ignore the first part. Were they dumb or bad Christians? Yes, okay. Um, however, the, let's go to the first part. Uh, the, uh, it is tr the very first person in the history of the world, I have this on, I re recently read a, an article by a man, who, Kyle Harper, who is a, um, a, uh, uh, a top scholar in the area of ancient history, especially... Um, the uh, classics, in other words, Greek and Roman history. He's an expert. And he wrote an article that said that there, nobody had ever said that slavery was de facto wrong. There has always been back and forth. And now we're not talking about Christians now. We're talking about everybody. Uh, there's always been back and forth over the uh, Some people always were, were bothered by slavery if you were brutalizing your slaves and that sort of thing, even back in Greek times, they, they was, you weren't supposed to brutalize people. But nobody ever said that slavery per se was wrong. As some of you may know, Aristotle very unfortunately, very clearly said, some people deserve to be slaves. Some people are fit to be slaves. Um, now, along comes the Bible. In the, one of the problems we have right now, in the Old Testament, um, there is a word slavery, and it talks a lot about slaves, but it was really a form of bankruptcy law. So if you became, if you uh, could not pay your debt, you became someone's slave. But if you go read what the Old Testament says, this is the Hebrew Scriptures, it really would, you actually, you couldn't be a slave for longer than six years, even if you did not, um, uh, did not make good the debt in that time. Uh, 
So if you, in other words, if you couldn't pay the debt back in six years, you had to go free because slavery, it was indentured servanthood. It was basically a form of bankruptcy law. You also didn't really own the slave. If you hit the slave because you got angry and you knocked out his tooth or something, he went free. There's even a place in, in Deuteronomy where it says, if a, if a slave runs away, you do not return the slave. You know why? Because if the slave ran away, it's probably because he was being mistreated. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, you realize this isn't the slavery we're thinking about. Lifelong, race-based, chattel slavery, it's not. In the New Testament, of course, there was the Greek and Roman slavery. Even that tended to be temporary. Even that tended not to be lifelong, and it wasn't based on race. It still wasn't uh, what we, we know today as African chattel slavery. But... Uh, the Bible, the New Testament never really says, oh, it's fine. It just sort of works on how do you live with this thing at this point. Uh, Kyle Harper in his article said that the, uh, the first person in history that says slavery is always wrong, always wrong, always wrong, they were the Cappadocian fathers about three or 400 AD, uh, uh, Basil and Gregory of, uh, of Nyssa and another Gregory. There were these three Greek uh, bishops that were reading the scripture and started to say, yeah, it's not just that slavery is not a good thing. Christians, we must never let a Christian own slaves. And basically because slavery meant you paid money for someone, and Basil of Caesarea who wrote this, he preached this sermon saying, you can't pay, human beings are infinitely precious. They're made in the image of God. How could you possibly put a, a, a price on it? So Kyle Harper says, Christians were the first people in the history of the world to even realize by thinking about the, what the Bible said that the implication of what the Bible said was all slavery must always be wrong. Uh, you might say, well, why did it take them two or 300 years? Because it did. It took two or 300 years for Christians to figure that out. Because the whole world, everybody just assumed, of course, this is just a fact of life. But the truths in the scripture finally started working themselves out. It took a very long time for it to become consensus. Nevertheless, eventually, as you probably know, it was the Quakers and certain other kinds of Christians who were the original abolitionists, and it, it worked itself out in that direction. Um, uh, Wilberforce, who freed the, the, uh, the slave, ended the slave trade for the British Empire, was an ardent, you know, passionate Christian, that sort of thing. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, Christians have not always been uh, able to agree on uh, when they read the Bible on everything. No. But they have a basis for an argument. And see, instead of just saying, I think slavery is wrong, and you think slavery is right, and, and therefore I'm just going to beat you up, with in other words, no basis for moral obligation. What Christians could always do is say, You've, you're misunderstanding the Bible. So you can argue, there, there's a, there is a common authority. See, there's a place where you, there's something outside of you and me that we have to align with, and we can argue about that. And it gives you an opportunity to do what happened, which was slowly the understanding of the Bible worked itself out into the entire Christian church. And there was a basis for saying, this has always been wrong. Always been wrong. Not like, oh, uh, slavery was, uh, now we see it's wrong because of social consensus. No, it's always been wrong. On the basis of evolution, was it always wrong? You can't say that. On the basis of moral, social consensus, no. On the basis of the authority of the Word of God, you can say so, even though it took Christians time to figure it out. But by the way, yeah, they were dumb and wrong, bad Christians. They were dumb and bad Christians. Underscore Be, bold. Well, I'll tell you what, listen, let's... I know there's a Yankee talking, and I'm sure not all of you are Yankees, but um, 
uh, the reality is by the 1850s and 1860s, there was uh, a growing consensus virtually everywhere in the, uh, in the Christian church. If you go to Europe, you go to Scotland, you go to um, uh, so many places, there was great theology being written saying, we, uh, you cannot use the Bible to condone southern slavery. They would look at places in the Old Testament that would say, slaves obey your masters. And so the people in the Confederacy would say, well, there you go. The Bible says slaves obey your masters, so slavery can't be wrong. And we refuse to see this is not, frankly, what was there in the Old Testament was not slavery by, it wasn't the same thing at all. Indentured servanthood, not based on race, always temporary. You don't own the person. You can't mistreat the person. It was really just a form of bankruptcy law. And for, they saw the word slave in the Bible, and they immediately said, oh, that's exactly what we're doing, and it wasn't at all. So they could have known better. They should have known better. They didn't want to know better because their entire economy was based on slavery, race-based chattel slavery. And so they did blind themselves to what was in the Bible, but they should have known better because they were, they were Scottish and English and British, and there were all kinds of uh, and German and French Christians saying to Southern Americans, you cannot get, uh, you cannot justify the slavery you're doing there from the Bible, but they didn't want to hear it. All right, you have referenced a lot that the Bible is the very source of Christian teaching, moral absolutes, but um, this question is alluding to a common question we've gotten, not just this week, but throughout the weeks, just looking at the credibility of the Bible itself. Um, And this person asks, how can you best outline Christian morality from a text like the Bible, which has been translated so many times? Hmm. Actually, uh, the more often it's translated, the, the better... Um, the Bible was originally written in Greek and Hebrew. And every time you translate the Bible, you, uh, you're, you're, in a sense, forced to read it really, really carefully. Uh, you're translating the Bible into different cultures. And uh, this is the... How do I do this quickly here? Uh, America is a very individualistic culture. So even though I'm an American Christian... I'm usually more influenced by my culture than the Bible. And I actually gave you an example of how uh, in the 1850s and 60s, Southern American, I don't mean South American, but Southern uh, U.S. Christians put, didn't want to see what the Bible said about slavery. They wanted, they wanted to see justification. So your culture tends to blind you. So as an American, I probably read the Bible and I'm missing things. But then when it gets translated into Korean, the Koreans are not individualistic. Some of you are probably Korean. Not individualistic at all, culture. It actually has a Confucian background. And because of that, when it's translated into Korean, Koreans will start reading the Bible. Actually, you'll probably be blind to some things too. There'll be some ways in which you'll screen it out because your culture blinds you. But you'll see some things in the Bible that I won't see because of your perspective and, your, and, and therefore we actually do need uh, the Bible to be translated into many different uh, languages and into many different cultures and we need Christians though then not to stay in their cultures but to know each other and to talk to each other and to argue with each other to make sure we're reading the Bible well and coming to a much better consensus on what the Bible actually teaches especially in the area of morals.
How are, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, I'll ask this question. How are Christian moral absolutes compatible or superior to other religion, other religions' moral absolutes? Why should I believe that Christian moral absolutes are the real ones over others? Yeah, that's, but these are great questions um, and very helpful, really, but hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, the, uh, well, I mean, you do... Uh, first of all, you, you, uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, I've probably quoted him before in this series, wrote a book called um, The Righteous Mind. And in that book, he looks at uh, religious and secular societies and basically says where secular societies have v- uh, a very different set of moral uh, beliefs they usually believe in freedom and care. Uh, uh, that religious societies actually have a have a, a longer set of them, and they're and they're somewhat similar. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book called *The Abolition of Man*, and in the back of *The Abolition of Man*, there is a an appendix. I don't know why he called it. He called it the Tao. T.A.O. I'm not sure why he chose a a Chinese word there. But what he did was he tried to compare uh, the writings of Hinduism, uh, Judaism, of course, which is the Old Testament. I mean, anything that, yeah, Judaism, Old Testament, Christianity, Old and New Testament, Islam, Hinduism, and probably Buddhism. So he took five world religions and he asked the question, uh, what does it teach about sex? What about it teach about family? What does it teach about the poor? What does it teach about so he went down a whole list, and there's a surprising amount of overlap. Uh, in fact, I go so far as to say, this is a great question, the real differences between religions, though, the real differences are not so much in the area of moral norms. Some of you may realize that here in, in New York, for example, Muslims and Orthodox Jews and um, Christians and... Um, probably have awfully similar views on things like family, sex, uh, caring for the poor, very, very similar views. The difference between, the ch- between religions is more on how do you get saved, not how you should live. The, uh, I'm not saying there's no differences. Uh, turn the other cheek, forgive 70 times 7, all this stuff that Jesus says about that is not there in Islam. Uh, it's not even really there so much in Judaism. But, the, but the, nevertheless, having said that, the, the, there's an awful lot of overlap between... The, the big differences in religions are how do you connect to God? How do you get saved? How do you get eternal life? That's the difference. Massive. When it comes to how you live, there's actually a fair amount of consensus. Not how much, maybe 70%. There's, there's quite a bit of consensus. I'm just kidding, keep getting multiple questions about the actual um, resources that Christians have or... Um, for moral absolutes, uh, a lot of questions about the character of Christians themselves. Um, so this one, this person asks, you said Christians don't follow a set of rules, but the person of Jesus. But why do I see so many Christians in the church judging people who don't go to church? Um, why do I see so many Christians judging people who don't go to church? And they tied it to, you said yeah, people no, don't no. follow rules, but Jesus. Right. Well, now... I, by the way, I better clarify something. When I say it doesn't mean there's no rules. I mean, when, when I, um, how do 
I say it? When I got married, uh, you fall in love and you get married, and immediately there's a whole lot of things that will please your spouse that now you, you, hopefully you want to do because you love to see your spouse happy. You, you, know, you know one of the best ways to love your spouse is uh, don't be so sloppy about this or make sure you do this or I don't know. In other words, there's a whole set of things that will please your spouse that actually become, in a sense, rules for your life, new rules for your life. But you don't even think of that. You're not exactly obeying your spouse. You're, you're more like, in a sense, what you're doing is you're following the rules of the relationship because uh, your spouse will feel loved if you do X, Y, Z, and therefore you do it because you, you, you want to love your spouse and you want to see your spouse pleased. Uh, that's really the way Christianity thinks of uh, morality, and it's different than other religions, honestly. Uh, you know, in the book of Exodus, God doesn't give the children of Israel the Ten Commandments and, and when they start to obey, he, he leads them out and delivers them from slavery? No. He delivers them from slavery, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments so they can love him for what he's done. And in other words, I, uh, and in the same way, uh, most religions, you obey, and if you obey, maybe God will love you. In Christianity, through faith in Christ, I get all God's love. And now, the reason I do follow the rules I mean, for example, it says, it says, if you insult the poor, this is in the book of Proverbs, if you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. If you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. In other words, the Lord loves it when you care about the poor. And so now why am I caring about the poor? So I'll go to heaven? No, I've already got that in Christ. I do it because I, I do it for the love of the poor. I love, do it for the love of God. That's why I was trying to say, you start with that relationship with God, with Christ, and then, the, but you still do obey the law of God, but it's, for a, it's, it's secondary, it's necessary, but it's motivated in a very different way. Now, what was the second part of the question, though? That was the first part. The first part of the question is, I want you to say, yes, though I do uh, follow Christ first, not a set of rules, there still is obedience. And the last part of the question was... Why are Christians so judgmental of those yeah, who don't well, go to church? That's easy. I, I think I already told you. And that is that Christians are not drawing on their resources. They aren't. There's still the judgmentalism. Um, I don't know how in the world, if you really believe you're saved by complete grace, that God accepts you not because of your good works, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, that has got to take you off out of the judgmentalism. How can you do that? Um, I'll just tell you a story. And this, is, this is Jesus' uh, parable. Jesus says, imagine a king had a servant, and the servant owed the king a billion dollars. That's pretty much the way the parable goes. And the king says, pay up. And the servant says, I don't have a billion dollars. And the king says, I will, I will throw you into uh, prison. And the, and, the, and the servant says, please, please, I, I don't know what to say. I'll never be able to pay you. And the king looked at him and had mercy on him and said, okay, I forgive your entire debt. And what if that servant went on happy, of course, and he met another servant who owed him $5. And the, and the first servant said to the second servant, where's my $5? And the second servant said, oh, please give me another two weeks. I, I don't have it. And the first servant says, no, I'll throw you into debtor's prison. And, he's, and then Jesus, and he does. And Jesus says, if the king hears about that, he's going to come to the first servant and he's going to say, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
So anybody who is judgmental towards someone who doesn't have the right views, they can't really believe that they're saved by, by God's sheer grace. They, they just don't understand it. They can't. To the degree you understand what the Bible actually, what, what the gospel is, to that degree that judgmentalism should be just sucked out of you. The way a water bug sucks, never mind. All right. Glad you cut it off there. Um, next question. Tim, this, this person is saying, this whole lecture has been based on the premise that there is moral absolutes, but what evidence is there actually for this? On pretty much every major issue, people are divided on what is right and wrong. Yeah. Okay. First of all, I said, this is not the only way. Is this the last question? Last question. Okay. Uh, so I can go on forever. <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, as I try to say, there are several ways to compare belief systems in order to decide which one is the most likely to be true. Probably the one we, you, maybe whoever is asking the question, you probably want to say, okay, let's talk about the, the, the arguments for God. Are they strong or are they weak? Let's talk about the arguments for Christianity. Are they strong or are they weak? Now we're getting down to really deciding whether or not Christianity is you know, true or not. Yeah, but here's the problem. If you can't live... I'm trying to make the case tonight that you do believe in moral absolutes. You do. Anybody who's ever told me, they say, I'm a secular person, I'm an atheist, and I believe all morality is relative. <laughs> the very next minute, if somebody steps on you or does something wrong to you, or you're all over them. In other words, and, and it, it's, there's no way that anybody can actually live as if there's no moral absolutes. Nobody can live as if there's no moral obligation. Nobody. So now here's my question. You say, what proof have you got that there are moral absolutes, and yet you can't live as if there's not? What does that mean? So one of the ways you can ask the question is, why would you, if there were no moral absolutes, be that invested in it? Well, you say, well, maybe it's just evolution. Yeah, see, the problem is you say that means you're a relativist, but then, so you really are trying to say that genocide isn't wrong. It just feels wrong. You don't believe that. You don't believe it at all. You don't believe your own beliefs. Why? The, to me, that's an indication that your set of beliefs don't fit in lived experience. And, uh, or, the, another way to put it, let's be a little more rational. What you're saying is, I actually do realize that there are such things as moral absolutes. That would make more sense if there was a God than if there is no God. But I'm going to live as if there is no God. Fine, you want to do that, but why don't you admit that you are living a less rational life? You're actually living a life in which you actually can't account for something you really know to be true. Uh, and therefore, does that prove that there is no moral absolutes? Does that prove there's moral absolutes? No. But uh, it does show that I think... Uh, belief in God makes more sense of the way in which you live and the way in which you, your heart actually works. Now, that's not all there is to it. That's why I would hope that you would keep with us on this series. We will get to the more kind of traditionally ras rational arguments for and against the existence of God and stuff like that. But right now, I just, I would, that's my suggestion is that you do believe in it. You can't account for it. Why would you believe in it if it, didn't, if it wasn't there? Why couldn't you live without it if it wasn't there? 
Thanks for listening to the Questioning Christianity podcast. And remember, you can find more content to help you explore the claims of Christianity by visiting gospelandlife.com slash explore. That's gospelandlife.com slash explore. The Questioning Christianity talks in this series were recorded in 2019 in New York City, where Dr. Keller spoke with a local live gathering made up of attendees who did not identify as Christian and their Christian friends who invited them.